Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And here we go. Alberto Caballero, welcome back to the program. Hello. Thank you very much for having me again here. It's a pleasure. Now, Alberto, you've written two recent papers, and both of them uh, very much piqued my interest. And the first was on a candidate star for the WOW Signal, a source. Now, the WOW Signal is vexing because and problematic because the big-eared radio telescope had two feed horns. And that meant that there are two strips of the sky that the signal could have originated from. And you were able to find a star based on uh, being sun-like that might be a good steady target to search for a recurrence of the signal. Could you give us an overview of how you did that search and what data you used? Yeah, sure. Well, basically, I used uh, um, a database called uh, Gaia Archive, which belongs to the European Space Agency. Basically, the, it's a catalog of, you know, you know containing thousands of stars. Um, and, uh, well, you, are, you can actually search the stars by uh, the temperature, uh, luminosity, radius, and many parameters. And you actually can see which of, which of those stars are uh, like the sun, which of them are red dwarfs, uh, K-type stars. Well, there is a different bi bi variety of, uh, of, of stars in that database. The database actually only shows you 2,000 stars uh, in every single search. And for example, in the Wow signal region, there are more than 2,000 stars. I calculated around uh, more than 6,000. So, uh, well, 6,000 in the in the two uh, beams of the of the radio telescope. There are two regions uh, of the Wow signal region, uh, and in total, more than 60,000. Sorry, uh, 6,000 stars. So uh, yeah, I, I try to I try to focus on those stars uh, mainly G and K type stars, which could be more similar to the Sun. Yes. Now the candidate star is uh, very sun like, right? So could you give us a comparison between it and the Sun, and you know how are they different or how are they the same? Well, I would say that they are uh, pretty. I mean, well, the data has some. In error, error of interval and uh, some interval of error. We don't know one hundred percent sure whether of whether or not that the star is a sun-like star. We need actually more data about, for example, the metallicity of the star, uh, which actually gives a glimpse of uh, how many planets or the star could have, or any planets at all, because it is believed that the stars with low metallicity 
usually has uh, usually have a, a smaller number of planets orbiting around them, or even no planets at all. So the metallicity is quite an important parameter to know whether or not there are planets around that star, and we don't know that we don't have that information. So there are some limitations, but yeah, it's quite it's like one. The radius of, of, I mean, the radius of that star is pr practically the same as the sun radius, luminosity, temperature, and and there is quite confusion, uh, confusion uh, in my paper with, with the media, etc. Because they thought that I was only looking for sun-like stars, and not really. I was actually looking for any kind of G-type star, K-type star, which is a huge growth of a, a huge sample of data, and I only found one. G2B star, which is an exactly type uh, uh, as the sun. So it's like within the G-type stars, there are many sub-categories. Uh, and I only found one exactly like the sun. We can call it a solar twin. But there, of course, I, the sample of data that I, that I took was huge. All G-type stars, K-type stars. I didn't, I didn't look for uh, red dwarfs because you know many red dwarfs emit uh, uh, flares, which uh, it is believed that uh, this kind of flares would actually uh, destroy in the atmosphere of the exoplanets orbiting in the habitable zone. So. And we don't really know which of which stars uh, emit flares and which of them don't emit flares. So, uh, but yeah, once we have the data, of course, we can actually also include those red dwarfs that don't emit flares. Yes. Well, you have to start somewhere because while the profile of red dwarfs um, lately has been getting better for habitability, in other words, they apparently flare at their near to their poles. And that would mean that they, they they don't bathe their exoplanets in radiation. But um, that's still, that's just one paper. So we still don't completely know yet. But um, the, the flare stars are a problem for sure. Um, and then, you know, the other problem is, is it's extraordinarily hard to look for exoplanets, particularly terrestrial ones, around type K, the orange dwarfs. Because they're just right in this zone where it's just hard to observe that, you know, and look for transits and things like that. Hmm. So you have to start somewhere. You have to start with the sun-like stars, the G-type stars, and go from there. And since this is really just a proposal to look at that star <laughs> with, a, with a radio telescope and monitor it, then it accomplishes that. It's, we at least have something, finally, from hmm. the wild signal to look at in a targeted study search, right? Yes, exactly. And I believe that the most fascinating thing about this star is actually the distance at which it's located from the from our solar system because it is located uh, 1,800 light years away. And for example, uh, as far as I'm concerned, the only research people trying to see, uh, well, trying to calculate uh, the distance at which the closest civilization could be. It was written by Maconi, which is a mathematical, uh, well, SETI researcher. Uh, he calculated that the closest civilization would likely be 
located 1,900 light years away. And the star I found was is actually located 1,800. That's only a difference of 100 light years, which might sound like a lot, but when we are talking about galactic terms, 100 light years is like, you know, around the corner, really, really close. So the, the thing that fascinated more, more when I found this candidate is actually that, the distance. Of course, the, um, the Maconi studio does not mean that for certain, for certain we are sure that the closest civilization is likely to be at that distance. But, well, it's it's more, you know, a stati- statistical data that actually uh, overlaps and seems to be to coincide. Well, there seems to be a coincidence in, in both uh, articles which were done independently without, I mean, in the different years. Uh, and, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the McConey paper is interesting because it does put an interesting um, constraint, I guess you would call it, on the distances or what we could expect, where we could expect the nearest alien civilization to be found. And as I recall, it was 500 light years. And that actually rings true to me because I don't expect, (laughs) I don't expect us to find anything within a hundred light years um, because of just the statistical odds. But yet that's where we look, you know, in general. And I've always wondered, you know, is there a better way that we could search for their stars because the chances are greater, but it's also, you know, the case that it's also harder to see them. And, you know, you get things like the inverse square law and radio where you just, you don't have much hope of, of seeing them unless they're putting many, many, many terawatts or yottawatts into their signal. And that just doesn't seem like anybody would do that. Um, do you think, Alberto, that might, that might be the solution to the Fermi paradox is that all civil, alien civilizations are over 500 light years away <laughs> and very difficult to detect as a result? Yes, it, can, it could be uh, one of the answers, of course, because uh, the distances are quite huge. Um, our, yeah, well, we have been emitting radio signals to space quite powerful by our military radio uh, or military radars. But uh, but again, uh, it's uh, they, if there is a civilization out there, they actually have to need uh, they actually need to have the technology to pick up those signals, and we actually have this technology for the last uh, 80 years, less than 100 years. So uh, it's quite recently the technology uh, that we have when it comes to radars and well, radio telescopes, etc. So. Um, so yeah, uh, the fact that they we are not receiving anything anything might be just because they are too far, or just because they don't have the technology. But they can be, you know, intelligent species like us, uh, you know, one hundred years ago. So uh, yeah, I think it's it's quite complicated to answer that question. But yeah, I think uh, the, that the reason why I chose uh, I tried to make that paper and and um, try to see if there was any interesting star is to actually to search for exoplanets around that star because. Which is, as you said, it's quite difficult because uh, a G-type star, uh, I mean, uh, well, most of the stars, they don't orbit uh, in front of us. Uh, like, we cannot use the transit method to dis- um, discover exoplanets around most of the stars. So we have to rely on other methods like, uh, you know, um, uh, radial velocity. And uh, for radial velocity, uh, when it comes to G-type stars, uh, the bubble, of the star uh, is actually quite uh, quite small. We need a really sensitive uh, uh, instruments to detect uh, exoplanets around G-type stars. We now have Expresso, which is an instrument located uh, in uh, one of the biggest uh, telescopes, optical telescopes in the world. And with that telescope, we are more or less able to detect planets like Earth um, 
around G-type stars located far away, no? But uh, we had we we started having this technology quite recently, like I don't know, a couple of years ago. Uh, but so now there is some ex, yeah, some well, can say we can say hope that we will find be able to to discover a truly Earth-like planet in quite uh, even nearby. Who knows? Well, we're getting close, especially with a very successful deployment of JWST. So we can we can start trying to at least, you know, try to spot them, you know, and characterize atmospheres and things like that. So the capabilities are coming on. But it gets even better as time goes forward, because if we ever build Louvoir, then, you know, we would really have a capability of uh, characterizing terrestrial exoplanets. But our best shot right now anyway, as far as seeing a civilization, is the radio telescope. And um, this is something we can do right now. We can, you know, say they're, they're reading your paper at the Allen Telescope Array. They, they're probably going to take a look, wouldn't you think? Yeah, I think so. I actually, uh, the other day, I, I came across one SETI Institute uh, Twitter, uh, well, talking about uh, my paper, and I was thinking that's good news because maybe they, they realize that my paper uh, my paper exists, so they can now. Well, I personally think that probably they have been scanning that part of the sky for quite a long period. But we're talking about many stars. So obviously, um, if you focus on specific stars, the chances of getting some signal from that particular star are going to be higher. And also there are many frequencies. So, uh, uh, you know, maybe they didn't scan that part of the sky exactly or that star or, you know, set of stars in all the frequencies. So so I think it's always interesting to actually make a, a specific, uh, you know, quest on, on some sort of on specific stars, not just one, maybe, but a, a, a set of stars um, to see if there is something there. Um, and also, uh, SETI, the SETI Institute, has been scanning the sky uh, uh, with uh, laser laser dete detectors uh, lately um, to see well uh, if they could pick up any signal in this um, uh, spectrum. Because you know, actually, um, if you have a laser and you have um, uh, a telescope lens, like a Fresnel lens, uh, you can actually uh, uh, produce a much uh, powerful signal, uh, which are which is going to overcome the uh, square inverse law because you are using actually a, a Fresnel lens to focus, you know, the beam of light at a specific point. Uh, actually, this was actually uh, a, well, uh, let's say it was a thought by. An author, author, I don't remember his name, but, but uh, he was thinking about uh, focusing a beam of laser of light uh, into a solar sail uh, located, you know, uh, many light years away from Earth uh, to propel a spacecraft. Uh, so, uh, yeah, uh, an extraterrestrial civilization could do the same: use a laser and a Fresnel lens to overcome the square inverse law. And the good thing about uh, laser beams is that you know you don't have to check. You don't have to find the frequency of the radio signal. You can see the, the, the you know the signal with your optical telescope, or so it's much easier to detect. Yes. Now, that that brings up a question, Alberto. That you know we look, especially for the wow signal, because it was near this frequency, at fourteen twenty megahertz. And I sort of wonder about that. Everybody calls it the waterhole and that it's it would be an obvious place to search for alien signals. But that also means that if aliens are um, 
sending out signals, they may not do it at that frequency because they want to listen for other aliens and everybody's <laughs> everybody's listening to dead air because everybody leaves that frequency alone, which amazingly we do. Um, we set that aside, you know, in the uh, 1970s, specifically for radio astronomy, the uh, 1420 megahertz hydrogen line. And we did it globally. Nobody actually transmits on it, except clandestinely, perhaps. So do you think that that's viable, that that we <laughs> we're looking at the wrong frequency and that, as you said, we should be looking at a very wide range of frequencies when we look at uh, targeted SETI searches? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that uh, that's true. I mean, most of the search has been, uh, uh, I mean, the SETI searches ha have been focusing on the hydrogen line uh, because yeah, it is believed that we, it will be the... Um, the frequency that an extraterrestrial civilization would use to contact us because, you know, it's the most common element in the universe, which we still have to see. We don't, I mean, uh, right now we think it's the most common, common element, but our understanding of the universe is not quite 100% uh, accurate or complete. Uh, but yeah, um, of course, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, the SETI Institute has been scanning the sky, the sky uh, also in, an, uh, uh, in several frequencies between specifically 1 and 10 gigahertz. But we are talking about the same. There are more frequencies uh, after the 10 uh, gigahertz mark and also more frequencies below the 1 gigahertz. So they are focusing in a wider a range of, uh, of uh, wider range of frequencies because it is believed that between 1 and 10, uh, the radio, the, I mean, the, the the environmental radio frequency uh, noise is quite low. So uh, for us, it's easier to pick up a signal between 1 and 10. Uh, it, removes, it removes quite of the noise from, you know, cosmic background noise and etc. So, uh, but yeah, there are many more frequencies. There are millions of frequencies. That, so it's, for me, it's like um, um, searching for... Uh, uh, you know, a radio signal uh, in that huge, immense uh, ocean of frequencies is like looking for a needle in a haystack. Uh, it's quite difficult. I mean, the whole SETI project and the SETI community, it, for me, it's fundamental. They do an, a really important, uh, uh, you know, work, your job. For me, it's fundamental and very important. But it's like really difficult to, to find anything due to the millions of you know frequencies so that's why i think it's important to try and they are actually doing uh, to try to see uh, to try to detect uh, detect laser pulses uh, which could be much more similar and on earth we actually use a laser to communicate between you know use communication between satellites so we are already uh, using laser signals here uh, in space Yes, and laser signals are going to get ever more important because if we start sending out, as you mentioned, light sails, that's the way to do it. You know, that's the way to push them. Um, the It pays here to sort of uh, dig into just how we look, you know, in radio for alien signals. And to expand on what you were saying, when we, when we look, we're looking for a narrowband signal. Because a narrowband signal tends to be technological. Nature emits very few narrowband signals. But if you're actually transmitting something, by doing it narrowband, it saves you energy. You know, broadband is very wasteful, you know, whereas narrowband is very technological. So that's why we look. But the problem is that those signals can get hidden among the millions and millions of frequencies 
Um, so you have to be able to pick it out. And that was the thing with the WAF signal is that it was extremely narrow band. The way the big ear worked, the equipment was that it, it basically cut just the, the frequency from 1420 megahertz and just slightly above it. And it chopped it into 10 channels and searched those channels. A lot of those 10 channels, which were very tiny, WOW only appears in one. And in fact, if it had been one channel lower, it wouldn't have seen it because it was outside of the range. Now, modern equip- equipment can search millions of channels. But back then, they could they only had those 10. And they were just searching around the hydrogen line, which that telescope was built for. It was built to study the hydrogen clouds in the, uh, in the Milky Way and map them. And um, once that was done, it became a study instrument looking at the, you know, near the hydrogen line for alien signals. And surprisingly, unlike most SETI ex- experiments, it found one. <laughs> it saw one, a very, very powerful one. Now, that's the other thing in regards to the candidate. Given that it's distant, that would mean the WOW signal was, was sent out at extremely high power. And if it was through a Fresnel lens, though, it may not be that high power, right? Uh, sorry, can you repeat this last question? So imagine it like this. If, if, if you're at a distance of 500 light years or you know, something like that, and you're using a Fresnel lens to focus your signal into a, a laser, basically, <laughs> then you need a lot less energy to do that than you would if it was an omnidirectional beacon, <laughs> right? Yeah. So in this case, you know, instead of, it's always been criticized that WOW was too powerful. You know, this thing was a 30 sigma detection. And that would mean that these, these aliens were, were putting, you know, like the entire power of their sun or something like that into this signal, but not really if you're focusing it. So you can get by with a lot less energy and still produce a powerful signal if you're pointing it straight at your target. So <laughs> it seems likely that, that they, if they were, if they were actually sending the signal that way, they meant it for us, wouldn't you think? Yes, of course. I mean, um, I think that we don't really know uh, uh, how much power, how much energy uh, an extraterrestrial civilization would have. Uh, maybe they have much more than us. For them, uh, that amount of energy is quite uh, normal. Something that maybe for us uh, would be like a huge uh, consumption of energy. Uh, like actually, we're trying to send, you know, uh, there is a, the Starshot project that uh, intends to send nanocrafts to Proxima B using a, a, an array of lasers. Uh, using 100 gigawatts of power, and we are still don't have, you know, we, don't, we are not able to reach that amount of energy for for this. I mean, for this specific use, um, but maybe you know, for a, an extraterrestrial civilization, 100 gigawatts of power is a, the consumption of a single family. <laughs> Who knows, no? But uh, but yeah, of course, I, I agree. It's uh, that aspect. Also, the other aspect that makes uh, the signal to be well, uh, questionable is that uh, it was not modulated. It was just a signal, a beam of energy without no, without any message in it. So uh, we don't know. I mean, if there was actually an extraterrestrial message, it would probably be modulated because they would be sending, you know, a message like the ones we have sent, uh, like humanity have sent to another planet uh, with a message on it and this one. But also on the other side, it was not modulated, but uh, we only we were only able to pick it up for, 30, for sorry, 72 seconds. 
So maybe those 72 seconds, uh, you know, were not modulated by, but uh, the rest of the message that we missed and we didn't pick up, maybe the rest of the message was actually modulated. <laughs> so who knows, no? But I think the most interesting thing about the was signal is that uh, that it never repeated because um, actually the, the same thing that makes it uh, to be uh, unlikely of extraterrestrial origin, uh, in my opinion, is uh, it's a it's an important uh, point because uh, we have never received such a weird signal. It's not like it's not like, for example, fast uh, radio bursts, which, which are actually ten thousand fast radio bursts uh, in the sky. Uh, every single day and, and we don't know what they are quite good but uh, but there are many but the wolf signal we haven't as far as I'm concerned we have not received any signal like that at all so in my opinion that makes that signal a uh, pretty weird and, and uh, yeah it could, it could be said that the fact that the signal did not repeat means that it was a natural event but actually uh, the signals we have sent uh, to another to other potentially habitable planets, uh, our own signals did not repeat or last for a long period of time either. So, uh, and, and actually, we have not sent any radio signal in the hydrogen line using the hydrogen line, as far as I'm concerned. So, uh, so yeah, it could be actually be anything. <laughs> yeah, well, that's just it. I mean, uh, for take the take the Arecibo signal. You know, the 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 one very powerful uh, signal we sent out. Our, the frequency that we we did that at was set by the intent of the radar that it actually was. You know, it was designed to uh, radar asteroids, and um, we sent out that signal at the frequency we did because that's what the equipment could do. We did not send it at the hydrogen line, so it, it, it was very ad hoc. So if you um, <laughs> if you apply that to aliens, then it's not surprising that that we wouldn't see them because they're very very transient, just like we are. But you do have some hope, um, things like radar, maybe, you know, very powerful signals. But interestingly, those signals contain no message, <laughs> just like, wow, there, there's nothing there. There's no, no modulation or at least not, not modulation that you would use to communicate something. Hmm. So it's, it's entirely possible that we're seeing signals, but we just don't have enough to go on to, to recognize them. Hmm. That's true. I mean, you know, it, it could be that we're, we're seeing aliens every day, you know, near the hydrogen line, but the communications are just so obscure that we don't know that that's what that is, you know, because transient signals do come in still, you know, nothing quite like, wow, but they, they, they still come in, but they get discarded. Um, so do you think that there's a high probability that we might have actually detected aliens and just miss it, missed it? Yeah, I think that's perfectly perfectly possible because uh, we don't really know the language of, uh, of an extraterrestrial civilization. So maybe those uh, you know signals were uh, encoded in a with in a language that we don't really understand. So uh, for well, we use a binary code ones and zeros to send to send a message with one and zero uh, that composition. But uh, but uh, you know maybe they are using all the other form to to communicate with us or to communicate you know to send interstellar messages maybe they don't use the binary code so uh, so yeah we, maybe we don't understand the, the you know the language that they are that they are using and uh, yeah basically that yeah well we also don't know about time frames um, and repetition so an alien civilization that wanted to contact us might say, well, we're going to send them a message periodically 
And that period is going to be once every 400 years <laughs> because that's, that's how long they, 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 they operate, you know, their, their timeframes. Yeah. And that's a total unknown because you, it's completely unpredictable. You don't yeah. know what, what time intervals an alien would choose to, to contact you so that, you know, us fast humans, you know, that only live for 80 years or whatever, we, we, we're just too impatient to look long enough to see the pattern. You know, so <laughs> that's, that's why people people don't realize just how hard SETI searches are yeah. because and it, and it shouldn't be surprising that nothing's been seen yet. And I wouldn't want to say. Based on the on the corpus of information that we've built over the last 50 years, we got a lot more looking to do before we can say anything. You know, people like to say, well, there are, there are no aliens or else you'd have seen a radio signal by now. Well, that's not true. Uh come back and talk to me in about five or 600 years, hmm. then we might be able to say that. Yeah. Do you agree? Yes, of course. I mean, uh, the time frames of an extraterrestrial civilization could be totally different than ours. So, uh, yeah, the fact that, uh, again, uh, maybe they might, they might not be actually sending any message for the same reason that we are not sending any message because we are kind of afraid of, you know, <laughs> of uh, the possibility that uh, malicious civilization could pick up the signal. So actually, we have been emitting quite a small number of messages to outer space, I mean, to specific uh, habitable planets, and using, you know, specific frequencies. Uh, but uh, on the other hand, we have also some radars on the Earth. Uh, I think it's called Eaglin, the Eaglin U.S. Space Force radar, which actually emits uh, radio signals uh, with a power of 32 megawatts, which is quite a huge uh, amount of power if we compare it, for example, with the WoW reply, which was sent in 2012 by the Arecibo Observatory, and it used only one megawatt. So we have a... So we have actually been emitting radio signals much more powerful than the ones uh, we use for interstellar communication. And, uh, um, and yeah, and those signals are uh, written or let's say uh, encoded in our own language. So uh, which can be misunderstood by, you know, uh, uh, you know uh, a natural event because uh, as you said, you know, of course, the ones we sent for interstellar communication try to repeat in a, temporal pattern, but uh, the ones used for military communication, not necessarily. Uh, so they just contain messages of well, secret uh, content. So, uh, so yeah, it's, it's quite a huge, and that's why, yeah, I think a laser would be the solution. Yes. Now that brings us to your second recent paper, Malicious Aliens, and the idea that we could maybe estimate based on our own history, the likelihood of coming across a malicious alien civilization. And if that likelihood is low, then we can start looking into things like Medi and sending out much, much more comprehensive, coherent messages to try to make contact with an alien civilization. So the question everybody's going to have is how, what'd you come up with? How likely is it that if we do run into an alien civilization, that it will be malicious and dangerous? Yes, well, uh, my research, well, first of all, I have to say two things. First of all, my research is quite speculative. It's a, a lot of speculation because, uh, um, well, that on the one hand. And on the other hand, well, on the one hand, that, I have to say that when it comes to the Drake equation and trying to determine how many civilizations there are, 
in general in in space is quite speculative because there there can be between zero and you know around sixty thousand according to Macone. So there can be it could be any number between between those two numbers. So it's quite a speculation uh, both of I mean the Drake equation and and this research they're trying to determine how many malicious civilization could how many malicious civilizations could be out there on the one hand and that and on the other hand uh, uh, we are talking about a sample of just one civilization i'm trying to i i, I what i did in my research was to extrapolate uh, the data that we know and we only know about the life on one planet uh, so it's uh, the sample you are using is just one so then it's a huge limitation also you are, there is another limitation which is the uh, in that sense uh, we're thinking about uh, the behavior of humanity, which might not be the same than as, this, as the behavior of an extraterrestrial civilization due to a different composition of the brain. But so yeah, what what I did was actually uh, yes, uh, well I came up with a really small uh, probability, but uh, that's large, largely based on the fact that uh, there are many potentially habitable planets. We're talking about forty billion potentially habitable planets, and uh, the probability of uh, existing complex life in any of them is quite low. So therefore, the probability of any of those complex life forms being malicious is also, it has to be also low. So in that regard, that's why it's quite low. <laughs> yeah, I could see if, if the civilizations are biological and they're like us. Um, not only is the probability low, there, it's, there's also the distance. You know, it, it's asking a lot to say, we're going to travel a thousand light years and attack that planet. <laughs> That's asking a lot. And I think that, that everybody's basically going to conclude that there's plenty of real estate in the galaxy and you don't really need to engage in, in warfare of that expense. You know, I mean, it would be the most expensive thing a civilization could ever do would be to send a battle fleet <laughs> yeah. somewhere to, to attack uh, a planet. So I think the likelihood there is low. What worries me is the dividing line between biological and technological. So eventually, if you have a civilization that's a machine civilization, and Seth Shostak has, has actually made that bet that, that when we do pick up a signal, it's more likely that what's on the other end is a machine. Hmm. That's where you could really get into an arch-malicious civilization that just has no interest or respect for biology and might come through your star system looking for raw materials and just not even acknowledge that you're there. It just takes you out. And that's, mm -hmm. that's what worries me is the difference between biology and technology yeah. because it's a total wild card. Uh, but with biology, I tend to agree with you that, you know, humans can do terrible things, but most of the time we don't, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> so most of the time we're just, you know, going to work and, and, you know, mm -hmm. uh, having lunch things like that. So I tend to take uh, some some measure of comfort from that, that we're not all bad, <laughs> you know, most of the time. Um, do you agree with that? Yes, of course. I actually, well, uh, uh, what I did was uh, to first, first of all, to calculate the probability of, uh, well, uh, how many invasions have been, uh, have taken on place on Earth in the last 100 years. And then I extrapolated that to a uh, a type one civilization uh, based on how you know humanity would behave in the in the future once we become a type one civilization and and of course uh, right now actually the the numbers came with a conclusion that uh, us as humanity we are more dangerous 
than a humanity in the future, based you know on that kind of extrapolation of the data. And I was thinking, yeah, of course, uh, right now on the Earth there is more or less five percent of the population of the Earth is psychopath are psychopaths. They have psychopathological behaviors, and uh, and you can say, of course, maybe you know an alien species in the brain composition of a, of an of an extraterrestrial civilization is uh, completely different than ours and they have uh, much less empathy much more many more psychopo- psychopathological behaviors but uh, if we take a look uh, uh, on, on those cases on earth on earth we have psychopaths and uh, this kind of people and we can realize that uh, they are these people uh, struggle to survive they, they have many problems so uh, for me it's really difficult to see how this kind of people would uh, evolve and develop to a, if all, I mean, if all the population were like that, <laughs> like that 5% that we have on Earth, for me, it's really difficult to see how they could develop to a, to a much advanced civilization. If now on Earth, they can barely, you know, uh, integrate with, uh, uh, not just integrate, but, you know, cooperate. Cooperation is fundamental, in my opinion, to the development of a civilization. And usually psychopaths are people uh, that don't cooperate. They want, they are selfish people. They want uh, everything uh, for themselves. So I don't see, you know, the in terms of, uh, you know, psycho- psychology, I don't see how they would be able to develop uh, because uh, we have that sample. We can actually uh, analyze and uh, study uh, the, the psychopaths here on Earth uh, to understand how uh, an intelligent species, uh, species would be actually would actually behave if all of them were like that. No, but as you as you said, some you know extraterrestrial civilization could actually be robotic and they they might not be humanoids or they might be just uh, machines. But uh, maybe you know, in that sense, maybe you know, uh, I believe that those machines would um, probably they would have those machines would have been built by some sort of you know intelligence like us. So here on Earth, on Earth, for example, we are trying to you know, well, not, not right now, still, but the, the idea would be to you know to integrate the three laws to machines uh, so they would not ca- cause any harm. So at some point, I mean, the the, the, the intelligent, I mean, the humanity would actually have some sort of control uh, over the machines. But as you said, at some point in history, that control could have could be lost, and uh, the you know the machines could actually overcome, <laughs> overtake it, though, the human control and start operating by themselves, and you know forget those few laws or whatever laws an extraterrestrial civilization would place over their machines. So yeah, any scenario would be possible, in my opinion. Yes. And it's just so variable. It, it could go either way. You could end up with a, a machine that was originally programmed with ethics that mm-hmm. is actually has zero psychopaths. In other words, the whole machine civilization, every machine entity within it is perfectly sane and they don't attack anybody. <laughs> or they it could go the other way and it's 100% what we would define as psychopathic because being self-centered and all of those things that go with that is very good for survival in a universe that has finite resources. <laughs> so it's it, it's interesting and scary to speculate about, but but fun nonetheless. However, that you could actually put a number on it was interesting, and I think it overall tells us that it's probably not that dangerous that we're visible. You know, <laughs> um, that anybody could you know within sufficient 
distance of us could see us right now with what we're, you know, producing, which is, you know, that probability is low, actually. Hmm. It's not that bad because, number one, there's probably not an alien civilization close by. And number two, um, they probably are not going to travel the great distances to do anything to us. So it's probably safe in this case to actually message and actively um, try to contact alien civilizations. Don't you think? Yeah, actually came up with specific numbers. Uh, I mean, uh, if we're talking, for example, about, uh, well, but I, my paper was actually focused on trying to see uh, the likelihood of invasion or uh, the likelihood of finding a malicious civilization uh, among those planets that we send a message to. Because otherwise, it's quite difficult that, you know, even if considering that, yeah, we have military radars, we're powerful, but 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 still the distances are quite large, and they might not have the technology to pick up the signals. But yeah, I was more, you know, I was specifically trying to see, uh, okay, uh, we are actually emitting quite powerful radio signals by our military radars, and um, we are having actually been emitting radio signals, sending radio signals to specific uh, potentially habitable planets. Uh, okay, what is the likelihood that uh, the mess? I mean the specific planets we send a message to uh, uh, contain or host host a malicious civilization. And it was quite low. Uh, it was actually, uh, well, the probability, well, I, uh, there are two numbers. Uh, uh, lately in the media, they have been talking about four, uh, with regard to my paper, about four uh, civilizations. So there will be four malicious civilizations in the Milky Way. But uh, uh, that number uh, comes from uh, the fact that, for, sorry, from, from the fact, no, from the hypothesis that uh, all, all civilizations would be like us, like humanity. So, which is something that we don't know. We don't know whether, well, we don't know whether there are any civilizations at all. We don't know whether they are more advanced, less advanced. So that's, that's why it's a hypothetical case. If all of them were like us, there would be around four based on, you know, as I said, you know, on all the invasions that have happened on Earth in the last uh, 100 years. Um, but a civilization like us would actually not have the technology to travel to a, our planet. So they would not pose any threat theory because, okay, they, there are four malicious like us, if all of them, I mean, were like us, but they would not have the technology to come to, come to Earth. So they, they don't really pose any threat. Um, and for the case uh, of type one stars, which is actually considered that a type one civilization would be able would be capable of nearby interstellar travel. The probability uh, is even lower; it goes down to uh, zero point. Uh, no, no, well, uh, no, no, even lower than that. In, the, uh, in that case, there will be less than one malicious civilization, uh, less than one type one malicious civilization. Uh, if all of them were type one, but again, there could be, you know, type two, type three, but that would be, I mean, uh, the highest, uh, you know, uh, estimation uh, uh, because, you know, a type two and a type three civilization would actually be less likely to attack the earth. So uh, that's why I try, I try to calculate uh, the numbers for the type one, which would be the, the, the closest to our civilization in terms of, uh, you know, uh, technological advancement. And also uh, the one which is capable of traveling here, uh, because otherwise, uh, how can you attack? Well, there are possibilities, but uh, again, you would also need you would need energy to uh, uh, launch an attack from another, you know, from one solar system to another one. You would actually need uh, a huge amount of energy and technology to launch, uh, for example, a laser attack. You no, know? so. Um, 
So uh, that's why yeah, I came up with less than one uh, type one civilization, malicious type one civilization uh, in our galaxy. So yeah, the numbers are quite uh, quite small. And actually, I compared the probabilities with uh, the probability of of uh, the impact of an asteroid just to make the public uh, uh, and the general public to see well to try to compare the, those probabilities no and actually the probability well what the numbers i came up with uh, the probability of of an, uh, of an extraterrestrial invasion is actually smaller than the probability of the earth being hit by uh, you know a uh, a huge asteroid that could actually <laughs> end up end with uh, a large number of the population on earth it's worth noting here before we go that if there were a malicious type three civilization in the Milky Way, we wouldn't be here. <laughs> yeah. We would we would we would probably have never evolved. They would have taken this world and and turned it into a you know a Borg home world or something like that. And that the likelihoods again are just we see no evidence that anybody's ever been here. You know, so it just seems it just seems low because the distances are too great now everybody should check out alberto's youtube channel the exoplanets channel and um alberto uh there'll also be links to the two papers in the description below and thanks again for uh, joining us today alberto and um i hope you'll come and check in with us again next time you release the next paper thank you thank you thank you very much for the invitation it was a pleasure